0: The following lecture was recorded in a classroom-like setting in which only the lecture was recorded because of this the participation of the classroom cannot be heard when someone asks a question or makes a comment there will be a brief break in the audio once the question or comment is finished the lecturer will begin speaking again thank you for understanding and we hope you enjoy the message heavenly father we're grateful for the opportunity that you've given us to come And to study how we can better give reasons for what we believe and what we already know to be true. We're so thankful, Father, that by your grace you've caused us to come to agree with the truth claims of the gospel. To not only understand it, but agree with it. And that by uh, the power of your Holy Spirit you've made us alive. You've made us new people that actually respond to that good news righteously. By repenting of our sin and trusting in you and being saved. We pray, Father, that you would cause us as we study this evening to have an eye towards those in our lives that we might be able to share these exact arguments with. Help us to realize that uh, that giving reasons for what we believe is one of the things that you use to draw people to yourself and to persuade them of the truthfulness of the gospel and then by your grace cause them to repent and believe. Uh, please, Father, help us in thinking about these uh, loved ones that, uh, that, that we're close with that don't know you, family members, friends, neighbors, uh, maybe coworkers. Uh, we pray, Father, that as we think about these people that we would be inspired and motivated uh, to learn how we can best uh, best demonstrate the truthfulness of your gospel to them. And uh, we pray that you would bless us in our efforts to get better at that this evening, um, for your glory and, uh, and our ability to defend the faith, and for your glory in the, uh, in the effects of it as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. And get this a little bit higher. So, um, Tina reminded me that this might need a more thorough cleaning than the wipe down that I had given it last time, and she is right, it does not look good, but hopefully it's legible enough for you. I don't have time to clean that right now, so hopefully that'll work. All right, if you remember, we are learning the classical approach to apologetics, which is a two-step approach. The first step is to prove that God exists. And the second step is to prove that the true God is the Christian God. Tonight, we're going to learn one more argument for the existence of God. We've learned a cosmological argument, which reasons from the fact that the universe had a beginning to the, uh, to the fact that the universe had a cause. Uh, last time, last session, we actually watched a movie that uh, highlighted what's referred to as a teleological argument. Uh, for those, if anybody's listening to this recording, I don't know if you're listening to this in the future, uh, but if you are, last session we watched a movie called Unlocking the Mystery of Life uh, by Illustra Media. And uh, I will not be... Um, uh, we, we, we didn't post a session for the last one because most of it consisted of watching the movie. But if you want to go and, and watch that yourself, uh, again, it's Unlocking the Mystery of Life by Illustra Media. And, uh, and it paints a great portrait of, uh, of an argument from design, specifically from design evident in living organisms. Um, so an argument... Uh, from design and biology. Now we're going to revisit that a little bit at the beginning tonight um, just so, to kind of solidify some of the concepts we picked up from the documentary last time, uh, but we're going to focus primarily on learning a new argument tonight, and that argument is going to be an argument uh, for morality. So we'll have learned three arguments when all said and done for the existence of God, and then next week we're going to learn one or two arguments uh, to demonstrate that the God who exists is in fact the God of the Bible. So that's kind of where we're at uh, with this in the course. As I alluded to in the prayer, uh, when we're studying these things, please try to imagine— I know it can be hard because some of these ideas might be a little bit more technical at first, but really try hard to imagine yourself sharing these things with people in your life that you love and you care about. Some of these arguments might work for them. Some of them might not be good to share with them. Um, but have specific people in your mind that you love and care about and use that as a motivation to really try to grasp these, these things and, uh, and to get better at not only understanding how these arguments work, but then of course sharing them yourself. All right, so with that said, uh, let's go ahead and uh, try to solidify what we learned from the video last time. So uh, the type of argument that, we, uh, that was demonstrated to us in the video from last week is called a teleological argument. Does anybody remember what teleological arguments are from the sloppy handwriting on the whiteboard that is also covered with other stuff and makes it hard to read. That is a good assumption, yes. Yeah, because uh, the word teleological comes from the Greek word telos, which means goal or end. And so teleological arguments are arguments that reason from things that appear to have some kind of goal or some kind of end. Or perhaps you might even say designed to perform a particular function. And reasons from that phenomenon to the existence of a designer, of a purposer, um, of somebody who was trying to accomplish some kind of intended goal. Um, so you can, uh, you can go ahead and watch the movie for a more in-depth uh, demonstration and discussion of some of the evidences for design and biology that we talked about. Um, it's a, it was a helpful film because it not only functions as, a good, uh, as, as good evidence for the existence of God, but also evidence against uh, atheistic evolution. And I use that word intentionally um, because is evolution, is, is evolution real? Is it a real thing? Evolution, evolution yeah. You don't think so? Yeah, that's right. It depends on how you define it. It depends on what sense. There's a couple different ways that people will talk about evolution. Oftentimes, when you hear it discussed, it's referring to macroevolution, which is the idea that that species can evolve um, from one kind of species to another kind of species. Macro referring to big evolution. Um, We don't believe that that is a thing. I personally don't believe that that is a thing. Um, Some Christians do believe in evolution, um, but perhaps they, might be be, perhaps they might believe that it was guided by some kind of intelligent cause, that God maybe used the evolutionary process to get uh, to where we are today. I, don't, I think that view has serious exegetical problems and serious theological problems, um, but some Christians do hold that view. Um, however, even though we reject—oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, ser- yeah, serious scientific problems, that's right, not the least of which to mention. Um, that said, microevolution is a thing. And microevolution is evolution within a species. Um, and uh, if you'll recall from the movie last time, uh, one of the, um, one of the uh, uh, evolutionary uh, uh, examples that Darwin's uh, famous for is, uh, is the finches on the Galapagos Islands, right? He sets off to the Galapagos. He sees finches that have different sizes of beaks. Some have bigger beaks, some have smaller beaks. And the ones with the bigger beaks survive better in that climate, and the ones with the smaller beaks kind of get weeded out over time because they don't survive as well. And so the ones with bigger beaks are naturally selected to continue to perpetuate their their genes. And over time, the ones with larger beaks uh, grow in larger, larger populations, and, uh, and that's basically the way that natural selection works. It weeds out those that are less fit to survive. And, uh, and the populations of those that are more fit to survive increase. Um, I might be getting some of the details wrong in terms of um, the, uh, the finches and the beaks and things. But that's, that, that, that's the idea, and that actually is a thing. Um, Microevolution is real. We as Christians can affirm that as a scientific reality without buying into the idea that one kind of species can actually become another kind of species. That a cell can grow into a fish, and that a fish can grow into a reptile, and that a reptile can grow into a land animal like a human or some into birds. We don't believe in that kind of evolution. I don't, at least. Uh, now that said, the film addressed two types of evidence, um, specifically uh, two, two things, uh, two phenomena that we notice in living organisms that, uh, that are very, very difficult. I would say impossible to explain apart from some kind of intelligence, apart from intelligent design. Um, now, even if somebody still wants to try to explain these phenomena by means of an evolutionary process, um, you can go ahead and do that. And some of the people in the film that we watched last week might try to do that. Um, but, uh, but you'll still need to have some kind of intellig- intelligence involved in guiding the process because these two evidences that we looked at are, uh, are just uh, are, are too difficult, like I said, if not impossible to explain apart from intelligence of some kind. So you have the handouts. And we're going to go through those really quickly. I want you to have something that you can take away from this and go back and read more yourself, look at more yourself. Um, The two evidences of design, again, specifically in living organisms that we looked at last time, include irreducible machines and information. So it's the page that says a design argument formulated. Irreducible machines and information. If that sounds like a big word, it uh, well maybe it is a slightly big word. It doesn't mean something complicated. So an irreducible machine is a machine that isn't useful without all of its parts. All its main parts must be present and put together in order for the machine to funk to work properly. It doesn't function if it is reduced of any of its main parts that's where the word irreducible comes from if you take away any of its main parts it doesn't work any questions on that by the way um, the material that you have on the handout and i'm going to be going through right now i'm plagiarizing from a number of different sources some from the film some from outside the film so this isn't my language or my original thoughts i should say which is probably which is probably better for you um, all right. So, please, if you have questions on these things, ask me before I move on to the next step. So that we, we, uh, I, I would really like for us to, to grasp this. Again, even if these seem like difficult things to share now, um, it might not be if you give it some time to uh, kind of ruminate in your mind and, and work through how you can, you know, how you can share this kind of thing with somebody else. So, an example, the example that was given in the film of an irreducible machine was that uh, was of something called the flagellum motor. You can see there in the example, some cells have uh, what is effectively an, out, an outboard motor that they use for swimming, um, and these machines include a number of different parts. They include a propeller, a drive shaft, a hook that was connecting it to the drive shaft, and a motor that powers the turning, as well as a stator that keeps the structure stationary in the cell while the propeller turns. So it's a, it's a machine very much like an outboard motor on a boat with multiple parts, and all of the main parts are necessary. uh, It's necessary to have all the main parts, and it's necessary for them all to be put together properly for it to work. If you remove the propeller, or the drive shaft, or the connecting hook, or the motor, you don't have a flagellum that works. So that's an example of an irreducible machine in nature, in living organisms. Uh, Michael Behe says that, uh, biochemical or biological textbooks are filled with examples of irreducible complexity like this. Uh, you'll notice that for uh, for both of these, I have uh, for both the example of irreducible machines and information, I have uh, a little box there called amazing facts. I think it's helpful to know some facts like these because when you sprinkle in a little bit of detail about just how amazing some of these uh, some of these uh, uh, design concepts are in creation, people can get a little bit more of a sense of how incredible. Uh, and and ingenious uh, these things that we're talking about are. So you'll see there that the flagellum has been called by some as, quote, the most efficient machine in the universe. They typically operate at 200 to 1,000 RPM. That's revolutions per minute. And they can stop or shift directions on a quarter turn. So amazing, amazing machines. And they're irreducible machines. If you reduce it of any of its main parts, the machine's not going to work. So you have an irreducible machine and you have three explanations for it you have physical necessity or physical laws you have chance or you have design those are the three options you have for explaining the origin of these machines the beaker represents physical laws the dice represents chance and the head represents design. If you want to draw a line connecting those to each of the pictures, you can. By physical laws, I'm just referring to the laws of nature. So example, a law in physics is that an object that's not moving isn't going to move unless some kind of external force or cause makes it move. That's an example of a physical law. Um, Now, one of these three things uh, you're going to need uh, you're, you're gonna, th- th- those are really the only three good options that you have for explaining how these machines came to be. And you'll see there the third premise in the argument is that physical laws and chance fail to explain the origin of these machines. The first is very easy to refute. There are no physical laws that necessitate the creation of irreducible machines. So what I mean by that is there is a law in physics Like I said, that if an object's at rest, it'll stay at rest. There's no law that says that irreducible machines will be created, right? There's no physical law um, like that. And the same is true of the other example of DNA. Um, The other option, chance, is also not good. Uh, The origin of these machines cannot be explained by chance. So if you remember, we talked about the finches and how natural selection does work itself out on a micro level, um, but the uh, uh, natural selection, which is one of the primary mechanisms of evolution, um, essentially works by preserving random changes that are useful. So a random change will occur in a species, and if the change is useful, that change will be preserved and passed on to the next generation. If the change is not useful, they'll be weeded out. That's the way natural selection works. The problem is, is that natural selection can't build an irreducible machine. And the reason why is because each successive change... To get to the machine isn't useful until the whole machine is finished. So each change, if it's going to be preserved, needs to be useful. But an irreducible machine, it's not useful unless you have all the parts already there. And so each change that we required to get those individual parts isn't useful and thus wouldn't be kept. In other words, as I say there, if each successive change isn't useful, those changes wouldn't be preserved. If we Use the example of the motor I talked about earlier. Um, A propeller without a motor isn't useful, and vice versa. A motor without a propeller isn't useful. Um, Similarly, a drive shaft without a hook that connects to the propeller isn't useful, and vice versa. All the main parts need to be present at the same time, and they need to be properly put together for it to be functional and useful. Uh, That should be either written down there, or you should have blanks to be able to fill that in. Any questions on why physical laws and chance cannot explain irreducible machines? There are no physical laws that require a machine like that to be made and chance can't explain it because natural selection favors gradual changes that are useful but only parts of a machine are not useful. You need the whole thing all together at once, put together properly. Any questions on that? Again, okay, you can read this back later and, and uh, hopefully internalize a little bit more. So the fourth premise is that design actually can explain the origin of these machines well. Even if that weren't the case, we would still know that it must have been designed because we've ruled out the other two options, right? It's not physical laws and it's not chance. This is the, by process of elimination, this is really the only option left. But it also makes sense that this would be the only option left. Um, in the movie, they talked about how we can detect design in certain things. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mom. Oh, sorry. <laughs> what was it at the, was the top? Of natural selection. Okay. Sorry, I was taking notes, but I can't oh, that's good. Useful random changes. Change has to be useful. Yeah, um, uh, each successive change isn't useful until the whole machine is finished, and if each successive change isn't useful, then those changes won't be preserved. Oh, okay. so too, useful are, yeah. too useful, right. Okay. All right, so design can explain the origin of these machines well. Um, they gave a rather technical explanation of how We detect design and things, and if you're interested, I put that there. But basically, we detect design whenever we see an unnecessary, improbable combination of parts that appears to have been specified beforehand. So those three key ingredients, it's unnecessary, it's not required by physical laws, it's an improbable assortment of parts. This isn't the kind of thing that would just fall together by chance. And it's specified. What do I mean by Specified. I think it's William Dembski who talks about this. Uh, specified means that um, you know, if, you were to, if you were to take a dart, I think this is the example that I, uh, that I read, if you were to take a dart and throw it, um, and it landed you know, in some random spot on the floor, um, uh, and, uh, and you went over to that dart, and you kind of painted a red spot around it, and you said, look, I hit the spot. Um, that would not be specified. You weren't trying to hit that. That would be what's called... Um, not a specification, but a fabrication, right? Um, it could have landed at any spot on the ground. So any spot is a highly improbable spot for it to land, right? Um, but, uh, but there's nothing special about it landing on that spot um, because it wasn't specified beforehand. Now, if you were to paint a red dot before you threw the dart and you threw it and it hit that dart, um, that would be more of a sign of skill, right, um, rather than a sign of luck uh, because it was specified beforehand what you were trying to do. So those are kind of the three ingredients. It needs to be something that's unnecessary, not a result or requirement of natural laws. It needs to be something that's improbable, and it also needs to be something that uh, is specified beforehand. The example that they gave of this, which I thought was very helpful, is that if you go into the Black Hills of South Dakota, you'll find a number of rock formations, improbable rock formations, um, that can be explained by physical laws and chance. Right? Each configuration of the rock is a highly improbable, highly complex configuration. The chance of it being configured just like that is very small. But they can all be explained by chance, and they can all be explained by natural laws. However, when you see Mount Rushmore, which is in the same vicinity, um, Mount Rushmore features the faces of four U.S. presidents, right? Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, and Lincoln. Um, And when you see that, you would never, ever conclude that that was the product of physical laws and chance. Right? You would never conclude that was the product of physical laws and chance. Instead, you would infer it was designed. Why? Because it appears to have been specified beforehand. Whatever brought this about seemed to have some kind of intended goal in mind. It was uh, trying to uh, work towards some kind of specific pattern. Right, It was specified. Um, so those are the ways that we can detect design. And the interesting thing is that uh, all of those things that we look for to detect design are present in those two examples uh, that, we, that we saw, both in irreducible machines and in information. At the bottom of that page, you'll see that irreducible machines, like the flagellum motor we talked about, appear to have been specified beforehand. Basically, that means that the relationship between the parts and the whole were planned to perform a function. So the relationship between the parts and the whole were planned to perform the function and that's where you get this idea in teleological arguments of a goal or an end. It's working towards something. It's trying to produce some kind of intended result. It has an end in mind, a goal in mind, a purpose in mind. Therefore, what's the conclusion? Intelligent design is the best explanation for the origin of irreducible machines in nature. It's not physical laws. It's not chance. Design is the best explanation. And furthermore, we can infer that the designer must possess a staggering level of intelligence relative to us, given the ingenuity of his design. So not only must there be a designer, this designer must be brilliant. Must be brilliant. The flagellum motor, as I mentioned earlier, is called by some uh, the most efficient machine in the universe. Brilliant. All right, that's uh, one example. I won't go all the way through the other example with genetic information, and uh, I'll, I'll go through part of it. Um, but what you'll notice is that the argument is basically the same. It's the same logic, just a different example. Instead of an irreducible machine, um, you can look at uh, the information present in, uh, in DNA and, uh, and come to the same conclusion that we arrived at before. So if you look back on your first page, We'll see that every living organism has DNA and DNA contains genetic information. What's the information exactly? Well, specifically, DNA contains the assembly instructions for proteins, which are the building blocks of life. To use an analogy, if you think of amino acids as little Legos and proteins as the structures that you build up with Legos, DNA would be kind of like the instruction manual for assembling those little Legos, into structures, into proteins. Um, DNA contains the assembly instructions for proteins, and proteins are, proteins are the building blocks of cells, or the building blocks of life. Um, that image there is supposed to help remind you that in, the D- in DNA we have uh, an as- a set of assembly instructions, basically. Um, assembly instructions for the building blocks of life. Um, the amazing fact that you can sprinkle in there, if you ever share this with some people, is that this chemical code, some believe, is the most densely packed and elaborately detailed collection of information in the known universe. Amazing. And all the information needed to specify an organism as complex as a human being weighs less than a few thousand of a gram and fits into less space than the period at the end of that sentence. Crazy. Crazy. How do we explain the origin of this genetic information? Well, guess what? You have three options. It can be physical laws, it could be chance, or it can be design. And just like we saw with the irreducible machines, physical laws and chance fail. They fail miserably to explain the origin of this information. There are no physical laws that require genetic information to be created. That's just not a physical law. It's also implausible to say that the information necessary to build the first cell originated by chance. And the example in the movie was great. If you think of how difficult it would be to make a sentence like, I love ice cream, by dropping random Scrabble letters onto a table, consider that the genetic information required to build the proteins in even the simplest one-cell organism would fill hundreds of pages of printed text. If it's hard to get a simple sentence like, I love ice cream, by dropping Scrabble letters on a table, Imagine how hard it would be to get the hundreds of pages of text needed for the simplest one-celled life to get that type of information through a random process, through chance. Implausible. Implausible. And that's what that picture is supposed to demonstrate. How do you go from a random assortment of letters to the hundreds of pages of text that you need uh, for the simplest living organism? Intelligent design, on the other hand, can't explain this information well. Again, this information like the irreducible machine, it's unnecessary. It's not required by natural law. It's also a highly improbable configuration of things, and it appears to be specified beforehand. It appears to be uh, working to accomplish a particular purpose, and so that's where I'll get that part in the conclusion. Genetic information, very much like a computer code, appears to have been specified beforehand. The relationship between the parts and the whole, were planned to perform a function. And so you arrive at the exact same conclusion as before. Intelligent design is the best explanation for the origin of the information we see in nature. And not only that, uh, the designer must possess a staggering level of intelligence relative to us given the ingenuity of his design. So those are two great examples from biology uh, that we can look to and say, these things scream design. Irreducible machines scream design. Genetic information screams design. You can go back and look at these more. Try and get some of those pictures in your head. They might help you remember those steps. Um, But each of those steps, we see this in nature. It can be explained by physical laws, chance, or design. It's not physical laws or chance. Design can explain it well. Therefore, it must be design. That's the way the argument works. Any questions on those? Can watch the movie. The movie had some great illustrations of uh, of both of these things. I think, um, in particular, the uh, um, I actually already shared the illustrations, or, or at least some of them, for the genetic information. But the visuals of the motor were um, were pretty powerful. Pretty powerful. Any questions on this, though?
1: Right. Because I, I wanted to see whether for like when they're presented and the the overwhelm what I overwhelmingly read is like um it's just unintellig like there's no proof that this is like it's just a lot of like roundabout arguments just mm. they can avoid just admitting that there's an intelligent design. Right. Right.
0: Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that, Tina. Yeah, intelligent uh, design is scorned in scientific fields. It's viewed by many as a pseudoscience, um, and uh, uh, one of the reasons why it's frowned upon so much is because of uh, of uh, what 's sometimes referred to as methodological naturalism that in order to in, in order to do science right you can you 're only allowed to consider natural causes only allowed to consider natural causes a supernatural cause an intelligent cause at least an intelligent cause of that kind off the table can 't even consider that so you 're kind of breaking the rules if you're if you're, uh, you 're know, you considering that that might be a possibility um, not to mention that many uh, already are, are are coming to the uh, Coming to this study um, believing that that doesn't exist, that, that, that God doesn't exist. So, um, but yeah, intelligent design, it's also not a, uh, a Christian argument. Um, you, can be, you can believe in a, in a designer without being a Christian. You might even believe in, uh, in a designer without that designer being God. Um, and There are actually some pretty, I would say, crazy theories out there about uh, aliens coming and inseminating the earth and things like that. They don't really solve the problem. They just kind of push it back further. Um, but, uh, but basically, this argument gets you to the fact that, uh, that living organisms in our world um, clearly seem to be designed. Clearly seem to be designed. That, that designer is a brilliant designer that's what these arguments get us to. Any questions on that? All right, we're going to move to something totally different, totally different argument. So design, we see it. Designs point to a designer. Let's talk about something else now. One more argument, perhaps one of the easiest arguments to learn and what may be one of the most practically useful arguments for you, because you might have many opportunities to use this type of argument in conversation, is what's sometimes referred to as a moral argument. And like I had talked about before, in each of these categories, arguments from design, arguments from a beginning, arguments from morality, there's a lot of different arguments in each of those categories. We're only learning one of each. Um, You actually may have gotten two teleological arguments if you take the two different examples. So moral argument. You can probably guess what that's about. We're going to learn this one a little bit differently. Uh, This is an argument that I've actually used a couple times now when I've gone out to do the public theology show. Um, I have uh, one sign that I made in light of the war in Ukraine that says is war wrong, what do you think? And then I have another sign which I just took out uh, this past, last time I went out, uh, that said uh, abortion right or wrong, what do you think? Um, and uh, in light of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I thought that that would be a good, a good one to, uh, um, to start addressing with people, kind of a hot, hot button topic. Um, our goal in going out there is evangelism It's apologetic and evangelistic engagement. So what good does it do to address an issue like abortion or address an issue like war? Well, with abortion, there is some additional benefit to trying to change people's minds on that, right? Aside from the evangelistic, apologetic part. Um, But what you'll see is that any moral issue, any moral issue of any kind is a direct path to proving the existence of God and from there to sharing the gospel with somebody if they're willing to listen. So we're going to reason about this together. Um, and uh, the way that we're going to reason about this is a similar way that you can share it with somebody, just asking questions, trying to understand what they think, and uh, walking them to the conclusion, that uh, walking them to the right conclusions by, by guiding them there through you know, some good questions. Um, I'm going to read to you a very brief article in the New York Times. Um, this was on the Uvalde school shooting. So we're going to take this and like many evil things that happen in the world, um, the things that people are thinking about, reading about, listening about, talking about, um, you'll see how, how, uh, how quickly you go from considering uh, a, a, a serious moral issue like this to God. So here, here's the uh, New York Times article. It says, On May 24th, an 18-year-old gunman wielding an AR-15-style rifle killed 19 children and two teachers at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, a small city west of San Antonio. It was the deadliest school shooting since 20 children and six adults were killed at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut in 2012. Here's what to know about the attack. What happened around 11.30 a.m. on May 24th, a gunman was reported outside the school shortly after he crashed a pickup truck in a nearby ditch. The gunman, identified as Salvador Ramos, age 18, had earlier shot his grandmother in the face at her nearby home. After leaving the truck, Mr. Ramos entered the school where he went into a pair of connected fourth-grade classrooms and started shooting. The toll was 19 students and two teachers dead and more than a dozen others wounded. Scores of officers from multiple agencies respond to the scene but hesitated to confront the gunman to the frustration of parents who had also gathered outside. More than an hour after Mr. Ramos entered the building, Border Patrol officers stormed the classroom and fatally shot him. So you see something like that on the news and your first response to it is what? What's your first response to it? Hmm? Sadness. Mm-hmm. But also, why didn't they act faster? Right. Yeah, wrong for them not to do something, I'm upset with the officers. Hmm. Oh, sorry, I thought you were raising your hand. Mm-hmm, sickening. Right. Yeah, heartbroken. Yeah, right. Yeah, fourth graders, I think, right? Fourth grade classrooms. Evil. Yeah. Right. And that's the word, right? We look at that and we we recognize that it's evil and, and the evilness of it, the grotesqueness, grotesqueness of it is what breaks our hearts and and, and makes us sorrowful, right? These are such horrific, horrific uh, tragedies. Um, and the reason why they're tragedies is because what, what's taking place before our eyes is pure evil. A man murders his grandmother and then goes and murders innocent uh, fourth grade children and teachers who are going to school, going to school on a normal day. Evil, wicked, darkness,
1: Hmm. That, that
0: yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and even like with the example with the police, like you were giving Debbie, we look at that and we we uh, we're upset with them because they didn't do what what seems to have been clearly the right thing to do which was to go in and confront the gunman as soon as possible right so we see the evil of the gunman it breaks our hearts we're upset that the police officers didn't fulfill their duty their duty was to even if it means putting their own lives on the line going in to rescue those kids Um, so we're upset about something that was wrong we're upset about something that was evil but what is it that makes those things evil what makes something wrong anything wrong
1: Uh-huh. As Christians, we understand that, this, that these things happen because we are sons and daughters of Adam. Right.
0: mm-hmm yeah yeah you know you know you're right, so what is it that's what's evil about killing innocent children? what's evil about murder so God says so, okay, yeah, what's that right, and even if there was, there wouldn't be any good justification, right yeah, Bryn? mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll, I, I, I like where you're going with that. We'll, we'll get back to God in a second. Let's pretend to be an atheist. Let's pretend that you don't believe that God exists. What can you say about the the Uvalde school shooting? You can say that it's evil. And when you say it's evil, what do you mean by that? If you're an atheist and you say something's evil, what can you mean by that? mm Hmm. What does it mean for something to be evil if God doesn't exist? That you don't agree with. Yeah, you don't agree with it. Yeah. So your personal opinion, it upsets you greatly. Maybe you can say it's a social convention. We as a society don't believe this. We as a society disagree with this. But that's all you can say. All you can say is my personal opinion, my personal feelings are strongly against that. Or we as a society condemns that. But what does your opinion matter? What does the society's opinion matter? He obviously didn't think anything of it. Oh, what? You see? I thought there was a fly on my head. Why'd you guys tell me? <laughs> uh, a Mike Pence? Oh, that's great.
1: <laughs>
0: How long has it been there for? Just a second. Okay. <laughs> Next time I have a fly, you can tell me. This is a small group. A small group. I won't be embarrassed, I promise. I might be a little embarrassed. Oh, uh, there you go.
1: So. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, as Christians, we can do something good like that, even in the face of, of great evil, right?
1: Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it is real evil that we're forgiving. I just want you to think about this for a second. As an atheist, you can say it's my personal opinion. Um, uh, my, uh, my my personal opinion is against this kind of thing, or our view as a society is against this kind of thing. Um, but that's all that you can say. You can't go any further than that. Now think about this: if morality is a matter of personal opinion, do you think that Salvador Ramos? Did you get it? Oh no, he escaped somehow. He escaped that. I'm impressed. He deserves to live at this point. Yeah. Now think about this for a second. The person who, who killed those kids, Salvador Ramos, do you think that he thought what he was doing was good? I can't. Do, you, do you think he thought what he was doing was okay? Well, he must have thought there was some benefit to doing it. It must have been good in some way in his mind or he wouldn't have done it, Right? Maybe, but it was worth doing in his mind. And let's say even if we can't step into his mind, what if he did think it was a good thing? If morality is a matter of personal opinion, then his opinion is just as valid as your opinion. You might not like it, but if he likes it, there's really no difference between your view and his. Or what if he lives in a society where people are okay with killing little kids all the time? If the society thinks it's okay to kill babies, like ours does at an earlier stage, does that make it okay? If society's okay with something? We have the sense that no, it's not just because somebody thinks it's okay or a society thinks it's okay, that doesn't actually make something good. Um, Now, for the rest of this session and for the handout that you have there too, actually for the next couple of handouts, uh, most, if not all of this material is uh, coming either directly, uh, either directly quoting or drawing from. Uh, Craig's work or based on Craig's worth in his books Reasonable Faith and On Guard and some of his online resources I like the way he presents the moral argument if you want to look into this more his resources on this are, uh, are very good and what you're getting here is, uh, uh, is, uh, is a lot of him um, now when we talk about morality this is up at the top we're going to distinguish between two things we're going to talk about moral value which you have there as a dollar sign and moral duties. What you have there is a hand pointing you. Do this. It's a terrible hand. Um, moral values refer to moral worth, and when we use the words good and evil, that's what we're referring to. We're referring to something's moral worth, whereas moral duties refer to moral obligations. And when we use the words right and wrong, that's what we're referring to. Now, sometimes we use those words interchangeably, good and right, evil and wrong, but they actually have two different definitions. Right and wrong are used to refer to moral obligations. Good and evil are used to refer to something's moral worth. And a good example of this, um, similar to the one that Craig gives, is that it might be good for me to be a doctor, but I don't have a moral obligation to become a doctor, right? I could be a firefighter or a scientist or something like that, right? Um, Those are all morally good things, um, morally valuable things, but I don't have a moral duty to do those things. So there is a difference between something you're obligated to do and something that is morally good. Not everything that's morally good we're obligated to do. Now, what if Salvador Ramos... Thought that what he was doing was good. Does that make it good? Shake your head. Yes or no? No, it doesn't. What if we as a society collectively believed it was good? Does that make it good? No, it doesn't. What if everyone in the world believed it was good? Does that make it good? No, still wrong. Now, you can demonstrate that same point with any moral issue. You can pick something like abortion, which is what I'm doing at San Jose State, or something like the war in Ukraine. Or if you want a good historical example, look at the Holocaust. Most people are familiar with uh, one of the most horrific um, instances of, uh, of mass systematic killing in history. Over six million Jews systematically annihilated under, uh, Nazi, uh, uh, under Nazi power in, uh, in Germany um, around the time of World War II. They thought that what they were doing was good. And what if they won the war? What if they won the war? And What if they brainwashed everyone in the world to think that what they were doing in the Holocaust was actually good. Would that make it good? No. The war we're watching unfold in Ukraine right now with Russia invading another nation's sovereign territory. Russia thinks that what they're doing is good, at least the leaders do. Does that make it good? No, of course not. You can pick uh, an issue that's sensitive in our country. Pick something like rape. You can ask somebody if a rapist thinks that, 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 uh, that rape is good. Does that make it good? No. No. You can pick something like racism. That's another hot topic today. Um, there was a time in our country not too long ago when people actually thought that it was okay to enslave people because of their race. Did that make it okay? Because as a society, that was the collective view. No, of course not, right? Whatever issue you pick like that, even if a person doesn't believe in God, they're probably gonna agree with you that yes, it doesn't matter what somebody thinks, it doesn't matter what society thinks, um, good and evil are not dependent on what we think. These things are evil. doesn't matter if somebody or an, or an entire society even thinks otherwise. Um, the problem is that you're not able to say that as an atheist. As an atheist, you can say, I don't like rape personally, but if you do like it, your opinion is just as valid as mine because ultimately, morality is just a matter of opinion. That's all you can say as an atheist. But we know that's wrong. We know that's wrong. It's a very uncomfortable Thing to even say. And when you're trying to talk with somebody about this and you're trying to get them to admit this, it's a very difficult thing for them to stomach because it means that they're not able to condemn all of the things that they know they should condemn. They can't condemn oppression. They can't condemn slavery. They can't condemn rape. They can't con- condemn the these school shooting. They can't condemn the invasion of Ukraine. They can't condemn those things because it's really just a matter of opinion and just because i disagree with them that doesn't make my opinion any more valid than theirs craig puts it like this he says quote if atheism is true it becomes impossible to condemn war oppression or crime as evil nor can one praise brotherhood and equality or love as good it doesn't matter what you do for there is no right and wrong all things are permitted people might try hard to deny this but deep down they all sense that it's true how do we know it's true how do we know it's true that these things are actually wrong, that they're not just a matter of opinion? Who's there again. <laughs> <laughs> <Just keep it. laughs> how, how do we know that those things are actually wrong? Because in,
1: because in the Bible, God has, when we talk about rape, we can think, what does God think about rape? Well, we know from the Old Testament what he thought about rape. Right. So Mm -hmm. it has to be nihilism. It has to either, you either have to go to have a belief in God, because, or you go towards nihilism. And so the majority of atheists today are
0: dysfunctional nihilists. Yeah, and and I appreciate bringing that up to you. And we're actually going to talk about that briefly at the end tonight. Not only is there no morality if God doesn't exist, there's also no meaning in life, and there's no purpose in life and an atheist is either going to be inconsistent and live pretending as if there's meaning and morality and purpose, or they're going to live consistently in, uh, and be rightly despairing. Um, those are really the only two options. Now, if we come back to the issue of morality, yeah, you're, you're, you're right, Tina, so we know from God's word that rape is wrong, but if we're talking with somebody who doesn't recognize yet that the Bible is God's word, how can we help them understand that the deep moral sense that they feel about the Ovaldi school shooting being wrong not just because it's some people's opinion that it's wrong but because it's actually wrong how can we get them to understand that that sense they have is actually right? Do we have any good reason to think that it's right? Well as Christians we do in Romans chapter 2 it says that God has written the law upon our hearts right? That human beings have a conscience we can discern right from wrong and sometimes our consciences condemn us sometimes they excuse us but again we might not share that with an atheist um, or with somebody who doesn't recognize that the Bible is God's word yet um, because uh, that, won't, that won't really carry much, much water with them. Um, but one thing that we can share is that uh, our moral experience, their moral experience, testifies against morality depending on people's opinions. Their experience unanimously testifies against that. We have consciences. And just the same way, that our sensory experiences, our eyes and our ears, apprehend the reality, the objective reality of the physical world around us, so too does our moral experience apprehend the objective reality of moral values and duties. Our moral perception apprehends the reality of moral value and moral duties the same way our sense perception apprehends the value of Uh, the the reality of this table and this uh, whiteboard and the carpet beneath me and you guys here um, are uh, our our perceptions. It's it's rational to trust our perceptions unless we have a good reason to otherwise. So I have a quote from you, for you. Uh, Craig says, referring to Sorley's argument actually, says, quote, there is no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. In the absence of some defeater, That's a a reason that defeats our perception. We rationally trust our perceptions, whether they're sensory or moral perceptions. In other words, if it really seems like something exists, it probably exists. You would need a good reason to deny that it exists. So if my sensory perception really makes it seem like a table is there, then I would need to have a good reason to deny that it's there. Um, And in the absence of a good reason, it's rational to trust our perceptions. Somebody wants to try to deny that their, um, if somebody wants to try to deny that their perception of morality, objective morality, um, is uh, is legitimate. Then ask them what reason they have to deny it. What makes you think you're you're clearly uncomfortable with saying that through of all these school shooting. Um, was, uh, was good for the person who did it, that in their, their opinion it was good and our opinion it's bad and there's really no difference between our opinions. You're clearly uncomfortable with saying that. Your perception, you're perceiving that this is actually wrong regardless of what people think or what society thinks. Um, so what reason do you have for denying that perception? What good reason do you have for denying that? You don't have a good, if you don't have a good reason for denying that I'm standing right here in front of you or that there's actually a purple pen in my hand, Um, it's rational to trust our perceptions unless we have a good reason for not doing so. What good reason do you have for that? Um, So the first premise in this argument is very simple. Morality does not depend on our beliefs. And then uh, when it says there, next to it, another way of of, uh, phrasing this is that objective moral values and duties do not... Oh, sorry. I think I'm, I'm reading from the wrong part. My bad. Oh, sorry. Objective moral values and duties exist. That's another way of saying this. So when we're talking about something being objective, all that we mean is that it doesn't depend on us. So if I say this stand is four-and-a-half feet tall. That's an objective reality. It doesn't depend on your opinion. It doesn't depend on our opinion as a society. This stand is actually four-and-a-half feet tall. It doesn't depend on what people think. That's an objective reality. A subjective reality is something that depends on the subject. So, for example, if I say Tillamook coffee, almond fudge, ice cream is delicious, that depends on my personal opinion and taste, I love it, but my mom is not a big fan. She doesn't like that kind, right? You don't really like that kind. I like that kind a lot. might be one of my favorite Tillamook flavors, if I'm honest. No, no, Mutzlite is probably the best. And that's an objective fact. Um, So so by, by subjective, all we mean is that it depends on somebody's opinions. Objective means, man, oh, I think you got it, yeah. He's down, he's on the floor. Objective means that it doesn't depend on people's opinions. Um, And so one way to say that morality doesn't depend on people's opinions is to say that um, objective morality exists. And again, how do we know that? The answer that you'll find there is that like our sensory perception, it is rational to trust our moral perception unless we have good reason not to. And our moral experience testifies... That some things are good or evil, right or wrong, regardless of whether people think so. All of our moral perception testifies to that fact. If somebody wants to doubt that perception, they need to have a very good reason to do so, and they're not going to be able to produce one. All right, but if God does not exist, what basis is there for moral values. Why is something like love and self-sacrifice good but murder is evil? Apart from God, what basis is there for moral values? You're going to need even more time to think than I'm giving you because there is none. There is no basis for moral values if God does not exist. On atheism, there is nothing that makes love good and hatred evil. In, uh, in one of Craig's books, he actually quotes from Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is one of the more famous atheists in the world today, or at least he used to be. I don't know how famous he is now nowadays. But Richard Dawkins said, quote, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA It is every living object's sole reason for being. No good, no evil. And he's right about that. I'm glad that he actually is honest and admits that there is no basis for moral value if God does not exist. What about moral duties? Can moral duties exist if God does not exist? They can't. If God does not exist, who obligates us to live a particular way? What obligates us to live a particular way? Who says that murder is wrong? Who says that it's wrong to kill 19 innocent children at school? There is nothing apart from God. On atheism, we're no different than other animals. Josh just killed a fly on the ground right now. But on atheism, there's, no, there's nothing special about Joshua. There's nothing more special about Joshua than the fly that he killed. We should be able to kill Joshua the same way that we killed the fly. There's nothing more special about him. And I'm serious about that. On atheism, we're no different than other animals. Animals don't have moral obligations to one another. If other animals can rape each other and steal things from each other and kill each other and eat each other, which they do all the time, by the way, why can't we do that? We're just animals like everyone else, right? Craig says, uh, quote, if as Kurtz, a secular humanist he's talking about, states that, quote, the moral principles that govern our behavior are rooted in habit and custom, feeling and fashion. That's the atheist worldview. Moral principles are rooted in habit and custom, feeling and fashion. Then Craig says that the rapist who chooses to flout the herd morality is doing nothing more serious than acting unfashionably. And that's true. All you're doing is going against the trend. All you're doing is going against what society favors, what society thinks. Moral values and duties are nothing more than a social convention or a matter of personal opinion on atheism. So the second premise is also very simple. If God does not exist, then, make sure I phrase it right, Morality depends on our beliefs. Another way to put that is that objective moral values and duties do not exist. They're only subjective. They only depend on what we believe or what society believes. I should have paused earlier. Are there any questions on either of these two premises? If God does not exist, then morality depends on our beliefs. Does objective morality really require the existence of God, though? How come they can't just exist on their own? How come moral values and moral duties can't just exist out there Without God. How come we can't just say that they exist and leave it at that? Okay, because God does exist, right? You know that. You're thinking as a Christian. How, 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 can we, how can we say, though, that the existence of these things means that something like God must exist?
1: Right. Sure. I like, paper somewhere. Mm hmm. Or that table
0: or whatever else. Yeah. 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 So let's think like this. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Andrea. What are you say? A lot of people think they're basically good people. hmm. they not believers. They just think
1: they're good. Yeah. Right. To that is you, you throw out because you annihilate everything else. If everybody's got their own opinion, everybody's right, and every,
0: wrong, you can't have morality. Not objective morality, no. yeah. And since we all know that objective morality exists, since our moral perception testifies to that fact, and since we know that if God doesn't exist, then morality can't exist like that, we reach the conclusion that God must exist. But the question, before we get to that conclusion, is why, why does God have to exist? How come these things can't just exist on their own? And when we think about moral values, when we think about things like love and mercy and justice, moral virtues, um, we understand what it means when, and Craig puts this well, we, we understand what it what, it, what somebody means when we say, you know, that a person is just, right? But it's very difficult to comprehend, if it's possible at all, how justice could just exist, right? What does it even mean for justice to just exist? If there were no people in the world, and there were no just people in the world, or just people at all, then in what sense would justice even exist? It seems like there's no sense in which it even could exist if there's no just people. In other words, moral values, moral values, I think I have this written down somewhere, are properties of a person. You can't think of mercy and love and justice in any kind of impersonal sense. They're all attributes of a person. They're all qualities of a person. We can think of of merciful people of loving people, of just people, but we can't think of love and justice as existing in some kind of abstract sense. Not only does that not make sense, um, not only is it difficult to even comprehend what that would look like, but moral values seem to exist as properties of persons, as Craig says, not as mere abstractions. Not so much not so much that, that's that that's a good that's a good question. That's dealing more with the with the physical universe. Um, but even like you can't, you can't have morality if you don't have the that make up the or whatever. Yeah, so so this is the way that, that Craig puts it. If you were to I'll actually I'll actually quote from him if we were to just view justice as some kind of abstract object out there. Um, it seems like justice is not itself just. Um, He says, quote, uh, that that was actually, he says, it would would seem to follow that in the absence of any people, justice does not exist. Um, In the absence of any people, justice does not exist, which contradicts the idea that justice can somehow exist out there as some free-floating abstract concept um, uh, rather than than being the property of a person. Um, So, the part that I want you to write down there is that moral virtues, moral values, are properties of a person. It's difficult to conceive of them in any other way than the property of a person. Um, And I think it might even lead to a contradiction if you say that it exists as something other than a property of a person because if there are no people, it seems hard to conceive of how there's no just people, how justice would even exist at that point. Um, But leaving that aside... I'll quote again from Craig. He says, Let's suppose for the sake of argument that moral values do exist independently of God. Suppose that values like mercy and justice and love and forbearance and the like just exist somehow. How does that result in any moral obligations for me? Why would I have a moral duty, say, to be merciful? Who or what lays such an obligation on me? On this moral view, vices such as greed and hatred and selfishness also presumably exist out there as abstract objects? Why am I obligated to align my life with one set of these abstractly existing objects rather than any other set, right? Why do I have to—what's obligating me to to follow after these kind of abstract values but not these other kind of abstract values? Where are these duties or obligations coming from? So moral values and moral duties cannot exist in some abstract way. Um, Moral values exist as properties of a person— A person can be loving, a person can be just, a person can be merciful, etc. And moral obligations are laid upon us by a person. That means that the basis of moral values and duties must be a personal being. Must be a personal being. So when we say, well, why does it have to be something like God? Moral values are properties of a person and moral obligations are laid upon us by a person. Whatever the basis of morality is, it must be some kind of personal being. And not only that, moral values and duties also seem to exist necessarily. And what I mean by that is very simple. I just mean that whether the universe existed or not, it still seems like love would be good. Right? Whether the universe existed or not, it still seems like justice would be good. Right? Our moral perception testifies to the fact that moral values don't really depend on the particular state of the universe or whether there's a universe at all. Moral values seem to exist no matter what. They exist necessarily. They must exist. They can't not exist. And so that means that the personal being that is itself the basis of moral values and duties is also a necessary being. A being that can't not exist. A being that exists no matter what. And so this argument does not get us to a complete picture of God. There are many attributes of God. This argument doesn't prove. It doesn't prove God's power. It doesn't prove um, God's uh, intelligence or something like that. Actually, you might be able to get it from this. Um, But this argument does get us to a personal, necessarily existent being who is himself the basis of moral goodness. That's what this argument gets us to. The conclusion, is that therefore, God exists. Or if you don't want to use the word God, a personal, a, a personal, necessarily existent being who is himself the basis of moral values and duties. All right, what's that? Why wouldn't we say God? Uh, well, all, all I meant by that was uh, if somebody doesn't want to use the term God, that's the, those are the specific things that the argument gets us to. There are other attributes of God that you know the argument doesn't do, doesn't get us at, um, like God being un. Uncau- actually, I don't know. It, it, there there are actually a lot of things that you can work out from it if you think about it enough. Um, but yeah, it, it is appropriate to use the word God because that is. Um, uh, and and the, the greatest conceivable being will be a being who, uh, who is himself the basis of moral goodness. Um, so... Yeah, what you were saying, Tina, is actually it's similar to one of the things we talked about at the beginning. If we want an argument to be, remember an argument needs to have three ingredients to be good. It's got to be valid. The part's got to add to the conclusion. The premises have to be true. And it also needs to be persuasive. Right? If it's going to be persuasive, the people we're trying to convince have to find the premises compelling. Right? They obviously don't believe that God exists, so we're trying to take things that they could believe in Maybe already do, and show them how those actually logically entail the existence of God. All right, any questions on the moral argument or any objections to the moral argument that you can think of? Well, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, keep going.
1: So that is the like that is their argument is that evolution
0: is a constant up and down like a roller coaster and so morality changes. Yeah, and you, the, what you said at the end, the, the idea that morality changes or that morality is essentially a, a system that we've received by means of the evolutionary process, and it's a it's a, a survival advantage for us to relate this way socially. Um, that's just a way of saying that morality. Really, just does depend on our beliefs or our conventions or the way that we've been trained to think or the way that's been advantageous for us to think. It doesn't actually. Nothing's actually good or evil. Rape's not actually good or evil. Right now, in the evolutionary process, um, it's become advantageous for us to view rape as bad. But perhaps at some point in the future, like Tina's saying, it might be uh, advantageous for us to to view rape as good. Um, And since uh, it's really morality is really just a matter of what we believe or what we don't believe, um, then uh, then you know what'll be good or evil then just uh, depends on on where we've gotten at that point. Um, that's that's basically just a denial of this first premise. Um, but uh, but it, I think our moral experience unanimously testifies against the idea that that good and evil can actually somehow change and that good and evil depend on our on our beliefs. Um, there is a one interesting objection to this that is also uh, helps illuminate. Um, the, uh, the, the way in which morality is founded on the uh, character and nature of God. Uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, I guess I, I have room to put this up here. Um, you'll see that little illustration down at the bottom of your page. Um, this objection is sometimes referred to as Euthyphro's dilemma, and apparently it was re- first uh, recorded in Plato's... Uh, um, Book I think is a dial, uh, oh sorry Plato's dialogue Euthyphro. Um, I'll, uh, the, I'll read the objection very briefly. This comes from Craig. He says, "Quote the objection first recorded in Plato's dialogue Euthyphro goes as follows: Either something is good because God wills it, or else God wills something because it is good." Now I'll say that again: Either something is good because God wills it, because God decides that it's good or God will something because it's good. Both of those options are problematic, okay? If moral goodness is simply a matter of what God decides is good, if God just sits down one day and decides, all right, you know what, love is gonna be good, grace is gonna be good, justice is gonna be good, but murder and covetousness and jealousy, those things are gonna be bad, then that means that morality is really just arbitrary. It's really just based on what God decides is good and what God decides is not good, um, but then if, on the other hand, if we say that uh, God um, wills something because it is good, then that means that goodness somehow exists outside of God, and uh, in which case, goodness doesn't really depend on God to exist. It exists outside of him, and he's just commanding people to do what is good. Right? So both those options are bad, and, uh, and that's why sometimes this dilemma is uh, positioned um, as a challenge to the idea that morality is based in God. Um, the challenge is that if goodness is based on what God decides, then goodness is kind of arbitrary. It's just a matter of what God you know, picks and chooses to be good. And if God had chosen for rape to be good, then rape would have been good. Um, or if, goodness is, if God just wills that which is good, then goodness exists independent of God, in which case it doesn't need to be based on him in the first place. So that's one of the objections to it. Um, I won't, uh, for time's sake, have you try to respond to it. Um, but the objection is actually pretty illuminating in terms of helping us understand exactly how moral values and duties are grounded in the person of God. Uh, this dilemma commits a logical fallacy, and it's one that you might hear in, uh, in a number of different studies. It's called a false dilemma. And a false dilemma is basically uh, when somebody gives you a few options and they treat it as if they're the only options, but they're not the only options. So those two options that you heard Neither of, which, neither of those are good options. And if those were truly the only options, then yeah, we would face some problems with believing that God is the basis uh, for uh, morality. Um, but there is another option, and that option is actually uh, what the Bible teaches. And one of the reasons why I said this objection is illuminating is because seeing the falseness of these two views kind of helps push us uh, towards the right one or, or reveal the right one for us. So you'll see there on the bottom, I have a circle. In that circle, that circle represents God's nature or his character, if you want to call it his character. And God's nature or character is the basis of moral values. Why is love good and justice good and mercy good? It is because God is loving and God is just and God is merciful. What makes something good? Something is good because it's what God is. Moral values are based on God's character and nature, they are not arbitrary. God did not just decide one day that love was going to be a good thing and that murder was going to be a bad thing. Love is a good thing because God is loving. Justice is a good thing because God is just. Mercy is a good thing because God is merciful. Moral values are based on the character and nature of God. Now, moral duties, on the other hand, moral obligations... Are based on God's will. I'll see the hand here. Are based on God's will, or perhaps you can say his commands. So when God says, Love your neighbor as yourself, or when he says, Thou shalt not murder, we now have an obligation. A duty to do those things because God, a person, has commanded us to do so. But these commands are not arbitrary. These commands are expressions of his character and nature. The reason why God commands us to love our neighbor is not because love is good and defined by some kind of standard outside of God. It's because love is good and love is what God is. The reason why love is good is because God is loving. The reason why we should show mercy to others is because God is merciful. So moral values are based on God's character and nature. And moral duties are based on God's will or commands. And his will or commands are not arbitrary. They are expressions of his character and nature. So, that objection that I shared is a false dilemma. To say that moral values are arbitrarily determined by God is wrong. They're not arbitrarily determined by God. They're based in his unchanging character and nature. And likewise, it's wrong to say that God says something is right or wrong because of a standard of goodness that exists outside of him. Again, standard of goodness is himself. It is his own character. And the commands that he gives us Are expressions of his character and nature. All right, any questions on that? Any questions on that? So, the moral argument it starts with the simple recognition that morality does not depend on our beliefs. The Ovaldi school shooting was evil. Whether the killer thinks it was good, whether all of society thinks it was good, whether the entire world thinks it was good, it doesn't make a difference. It's evil. Our moral experience testifies to that. Morality does not depend on our beliefs. That's the first premise. The second premise is that if God doesn't exist, then morality does actually depend on our beliefs. There is no basis for moral values or moral duties if God doesn't exist. Moral values are properties of a person And moral duties are laid upon us by a person. And so if they exist in any real way, then they must be based on a personal being. And since moral values can't not exist, since love and justice and things like that would exist no matter what, then the being that they're based in would also exist no matter what. Whatever being is the basis of moral values and duties must be a personal being, and it must be a being that can't not exist a necessarily existent being. And that being is himself or itself the basis of moral values. And so it's very fair to call that being God. So any moral issue that you hear your friends or your family talking about, the next horrible thing that we see happening on the news, is an opportunity for you to ask them, why do you think that that was wrong? In a sensitive way, in a loving way, you say, I'm disgusted by that too. I hate that too. Tell me, what, what, what do you think it is that makes Russia's invasion of Ukraine so evil? What's wrong with invading a country, you think? Why is it wrong to do that to innocent people? And then when they give you a reason, ask, what makes that wrong? And then when they give you another reason, ask, what makes that wrong? What if they think it's okay? Does that make it okay? What if their society thinks it's okay? Does that make it okay? Eventually, they'll recognize, no, it's <laughs> That's not the way it works, right? Morality doesn't depend on what we believe. And from there, it's very easy to prove the existence of God. Because if God doesn't exist, then morality really does just depend on our beliefs, right? All right. There was more I wanted to get through tonight. I wanted to do a good review for us and kind of give us a chance to solidify uh, the three arguments we've learned now. It'll be a good exercise. We'll do it next time. It'll be a fun game that will enable you to take the three arguments that we've learned and uh, practice them in some interactive, uh, non- non-social, don't worry, ways, uh, just, play, just playing a game on the screen together. And uh, we'll get you a chance to, to learn those three arguments better. And, uh, and then we'll learn um, one or two arguments to prove that the God who exists is, in fact, the Christian God. Um, and uh, the first step, proving that God exists, is a very important step today. Many people, if they don't deny the existence of God, will at least you know, say that they're not sure about it or they're not fully confident in it or they might believe in it, but they don't think it's something that can be proven. If we want to prove that Christianity is true, it's very important to be able to prove that God exists. And then from there, we can go on to show that this God has actually revealed himself in history and uh, specifically in the person of Christ. Um, so we'll talk about that next time, um, Lord willing. Any other questions on the moral argument or the teleological argument before we end tonight? Any other questions? All right, go back. Read the notes yourself. Try and get the images in your mind. And if you have questions, you can ask me anytime. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you have written your law on our hearts, that even in our sinful state, where our moral judgment is impaired, that we can still tell good from evil at least some of the time. And Father, we pray that you would cause us to not let the opportunities that we uh, that you give us on a daily basis, where we're talking with people and we hear about their heartbreak and their sorrow over real evil that takes place in the world, causes Father to help them recognize that that these things truly are evil. That it's not just it's not just a matter of personal opinion. That these that these uh, horrors that we see in the world around us are objectively evil, truly evil, actually evil, and that that evil means that there is such thing as good and evil, real good and evil, and apart from you, uh, such a thing can't be. We pray, Father, that you would help us to reason well with the people that you've put in our lives and that you would uh, be pleased to help us demonstrate the truthfulness of your gospel to them and not only demonstrate that you exist, uh, proving that you exist, Um, but demonstrate that you are the one who overcomes all evil and suffering in this world uh, through the work of your own Son. We pray that you would help us do that well, and that we would be pleased to draw many to yourself as a result of our witness. It's in your name we pray.
1: Amen.